to this edition of the View from the Lab podcast. I'm your host, Andy Woods. In this episode, I catch up with Dr. Mike Milner to discuss his journey from science teacher to head teacher in both the independent and state sectors in the UK. In our conversation, we talk about his experience of working in the well-known Wellington College when the irrepressible educationist Sir Anthony Seldon was at the helm. In addition, we discover how Mike as vice principal improved the state school Wellington Academy, which was attached to the college during his time there. Mike led the academy from a requires improvement Ofsted rating in 2014 to a good rating in 2016 before moving back to the independent sector at Redham House School in Berkshire. In this episode, we talk about not just science education, but also the important role schools play in developing students' wider character before they walk out through those school gates for the final time. I hope you'll agree, listening to Mike's analytical and calm approach to school improvement will be an education in itself, as well as his journey from the science lab to the principal's office. So let's not wait any longer. Sit back and relax. It's time to listen to Dr. Mike Milner's View from the Lab. Hi Mike, welcome to the View from the Lab podcast. Great to have you on. Thank you very much for having me today, Andy. Not a problem. And full disclosure, um, I will say this, that Mike used to be my boss about 10 years ago. So if <laughs> hopefully he will treat me kindly in this podcast interview as well as he, as he did many years ago. Um, so what I want to start off with, and many of the guests I speak to, or talk to them about um, a bit about their background, about their, their love of science and um, where it all began. So let's rewind back to before you started your, your teaching career um, and you kind of your own experience of a school, really. What was it about science in particular that kind of got you interested? Was it something you always liked or was it kind of an inspiration from, from teachers that you, you uh, taught you in your schools? Can you tell me a bit about that? I suppose, uh, yeah, I really enjoyed my own experience at school. I, I, I was not from a wealthy family. I, I had a, a, a full place paid for through what was the, called the Assisted Places Scheme and, a, and an independent boys' school. And it was, it was a really good school, big, long history uh, and uh, fantastic uh, experience and the opportunities that I had. And school was a lot of fun. And I've always been grateful for that opportunity I had to go to a school push their students academically. I was the first in my family to go to university and it, you know, it, it was a real game changer for young people like me at the time. Um, and I think that being at a privileged school, but being in this more socially inclusive mix w- was, was a really formative experience for me. You know, it was, it was to be given that opportunity, but you know, I wouldn't have had it otherwise. So I've always been very grateful for that. And the teachers that I had, I'm getting quite, quite old now, but you know, the teachers I had, started teaching in a very different era you know i think some of them probably nearing the end of their careers probably started teaching just after the second world war and i was to be honest with you i was a little bit scared of a lot of them um but actually um you know the science teachers i had were amazing and and that's what put me into science um the fact that we spent uh most of our times with these really inspiring uh teachers who love their subject i seem to remember that we did an awful lot of practical work as well i mean having had a career as a teacher myself I don't think we do anywhere near the amount of practical work that we, you know, we did back in those days. And, you know, I, I think that discussions about, for example, what comes up in the exams or the specification syllabus, that seemed to come in right at the end. A lot of it was about the fun of learning. It was about the fun of being a hands-on practical scientist. And whether that was my school or general at the time, I don't know, but that's how I ended up where I am, I think. Do you think, um, in terms of interesting to talk about practical science, because I think that is something that, you know, if you ask uh, 99 out of 100 students um, when they come into to year seven or 
um, any kind of senior environment, it's the first thing they ask you as a teacher saying, you know, are we, are we doing a practical today? Um, so, so it will miss. And um, it's something that, as I say, maybe has, maybe has reduced over, over the years. And interesting you say about the, the emphasis of things. And I think that um, when you talk about exams, we were they even mentioned back in the day. I've got this experience that when I was at school, I don't think the teachers mentioned exams particularly until maybe the end of year 11. Was that also your experience as they weren't focused just on this is the thing that might be in the exam? I think it was um, it was doubly weird for me because um, uh, I might be a bit older than you, but we, we uh, were one of the first years of the GCSE. So we were taught pretty much like O-level students. And then the GCSEs were these, uh, I remember distinctly seeing the papers quite late on in year 11. And it was like, what are these things? These are these are so different from anything we've seen before, and in in a really easy way, you know, they were generally quite quite a change. Now, I, you know, I think it was not about you know being easier or harder or whatever we try and compare over time, yeah, but but I do think that um, you know the the practical skills development in science has been a challenge, and you know you will know that Andy about finding the right model for schools to support them doing practical work versus being too prescriptive and not, you know, not allowing them to develop the problem solving skills. So it, it is a difficult area. And I, I do hope that, you know, we could, we continue to look at that. Um, but for me, it was a major source of inspiration, the practical side of it. Do you think that um, thinking about the, the, the requirement, I suppose, for, for science education, and I think the difficulty we have, especially at GCSE having at the moment kind of uh, one, you know, route in terms of qualifications of, of access to science and things have changed over the years of course um how do you feel that um the current qualifications are kind of serving um students at the moment in terms of, obviously that's, that's set by the dfe of course but um uh, is there any kind of disadvantages or things you'd like to see perhaps more um that, that, that currently that the system's not really catering to at the moment I've, I've really enjoyed um, teaching the courses, actually, um, A-level and, and GCSE recently. And I've been quite fortunate because I've been able to teach all three sciences to A-level and teaching A-level physics more recently has been a new challenge for me. Um, there's really good resourcing there, which is fantastic, you know, and I, and I, I am, um, as, a, as a teacher who's taught chemistry and biology and then has to teach physics all of a sudden, to be able to go and find those resources is amazing. But there's still this um sort of nagging doubt about how can i best prepare the kids practically how can i best develop their skills as a scientist and i think you need a bit of time to be able to do that and i, I think the qualifications are still quite new and i hope that what will happen is as uh you know information comes from the cpac monitoring visits for example in a level is uh, you know we're understanding about what the best schools are doing you know what are they doing beyond the confinements con constraints of the you know the, the published paperwork what what else can be done and then how else can that be supported and, and i hope there'll be some further evolution of that have you found as most teachers say to me um teaching physics which was maybe not your main subject have you found that being the most um made you a better teacher as often people say is that 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 really has helped me become a better teacher is that something you found in teaching at very you know high level a level that's you know there's, there's a lot of in-depth science in there how have you found that well, it, it, it was um, it was just because of the circumstances of, of the school I happened to be in recently, but um, I really enjoyed uh, physics teaching. It's been um, an expected bonus. I, I you know I didn't I didn't think that I'd ever end up teaching physics, and in fact I despite being quite well qualified in biology chemistry teaching, 
you know, for many years, I told me I wasn't good enough to be a physics teacher, but actually, uh, I've, I've enjoyed the challenge of it. Some of the some of the courses stretching me a little bit, but um, actually, there's so many good resources and books out there. Um, you know, I, I do feel very supported as a teacher delivering it. Okay, that's good. To, good to hear. Um, and from your own science career, so when you moved from school to university, you went to Oxford University. Was that something that? again you wanted to do or someone suggested to you and how did that kind of opportunity come about is just something that you felt that was just right for you well I, I did biology chemistry and physics a levels and like many people i suppose who were in that kind of zone i want, wanted originally to be a doctor okay so i enjoyed um that thought for a bit but then actually what i really enjoyed was the academic side of the subjects i was doing and i realized there's an opportunity to go to a good university to push myself learning about those subjects and it's something that I was really enjoying and, and I changed from medicine to uh, wanting to study biochemistry um, and biochemistry is a fantastic degree because you you know it's a really satisfactory way to learn about living organisms and to explain how how they how they work um, and it's I find it you know it's a good intermediate between chemistry and biology in terms of you know really trying to understand how we all work um, biologically. And I was I was I had a question on on my list here you may, may have seen which is I was always intrigued uh, as someone who didn't go to Oxbridge University about the interview process and the kind of myths that being built up about the types of questions they ask you as you go up in for sick form and um, wonder if you remembered the kind of questions you know the professors asked you when you went up on those interview days and were they were they kind of just straightforward science questions or were they a bit more esoteric than that well there were, there were definitely the, the things that stick in your memory are the things that are more unusual i think there were a lot of other questions which are probably quite straightforward i will never remember the the, the other thing to add to the interview um unusual questions is the fact that also in those days there were entrance exams and some of the entrance exam questions were also quite unusual so i remember my first question on the biology entrance paper was simply why do people cook food and you know and, and you were expected to kind of write a you know reasoned scientific uh, perspective on that and then actually then you get to the interview and you're going to get some of those as well i remember there was a question about electron configurations and there was a new and there were different set of rules and i had to talk about which element was most like carbon and there's no right or wrong answer but it was about how you present your answer and how you reason your answer and um i think it's it's it was it was a good intellectual challenge I really enjoyed it i think i think things have changed a little bit i think they are also trying to assess how students cope under pressure a little bit more perhaps as well these days because i think looking at pastoral support for university students obviously that's that's changed in terms of um, priority over time i think oxford and cambridge and other top universities they are quite pressured environments so i think there is a greater kind of care taken i think to kind of explore that as well um, but but you know i did as you say those those um abstract questions still you know that you can google them and you can find out about what unusual questions like how many molecules of water are there in this glass and whatever you know so it's all about just assessing how you think there's no right or wrong answer yeah and since they are the kind of best questions remind me even um in school level kind of science you think sometimes have these odd one out questions and there is no right answer it's about kind of eliciting from a class what are their perceptions of, of why it might be right or wrong etc so i think they were good good questions to ask and i guess you know you said you've got a passion for biochemistry and you clearly had it because you carried on you did a phd um uh at oxford as well was it was it yeah yeah so i was just in the same same uh, college actually at oxford 
Um, and I, um, I'd spent a summer working in the lab looking at uh, molecular genetics and fungal reproduction, the usual niche thing. And they had a vacancy for a PhD studentship um, at the time I was just graduating. And I applied and it was, uh, you know, interesting four years. Um, I think eight years at university um, was, was really great overall experience. I think that I, I, it wasn't, it was clear to me that I wasn't really um, that interested in pursuing a career in science. I actually really enjoyed the teaching side of it more. So I had done some teaching as part of my PhD years and I ran out of funding after three years. So I had a fourth year where I was basically paying my way through tutoring. So I ended up from that, you know, going into teaching. I see. I see. Still, my, still, my next question was how you kind of kind of fell into it because um, my son entered you head to London after Oxford, and you, you began your teaching career. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So um, I um, applied for um, teaching roles in London because um, I was living in the south uh, anyway, and wanted to um, you know live in the city for a few years, and. Um, I, I found a role where I could teach biology and chemistry, which which was for me was quite important. I didn't want to be just a biology teacher, or just a chemistry teacher. So I, I found one that allowed me to teach both and both teach teach both to A level, and um, I, I was great. I really enjoyed that. And and you know, from that first moment of teaching, I just really knew that that was what I wanted to do. I I, I loved the life of being a teacher. It was it was a fantastic thing. So you definitely felt you'd been in the, the kind of the, it was, it, was, it was a good choice. And you kind of, um, I guess those first, was there anything that was surprising? Obviously you did some tutoring, what you said when you were at Oxford, but was there, was there anything when you went into kind of, a, I suppose, a, a normal, normal school environment? Was there anything that kind of not shocked you, but was different in the, in the way people learned rather than kind of one-to-one? Because I think you learn different things from both, but was there anything that was, was different or surprising in those first couple of years that you think, oh, I shouldn't have done it that way or, or whatever? What were the learning points in the first early bits of your career? The, the thing that I n- never regretted was working on my subject knowledge because, I mean, I had been at university for a long time, but the problem with that is you get more and more further removed from what, what it's like to be a 13-year-old student yeah. and you know a lot about your subject, but actually being able to articulate that and even ending up teaching things that, I had never learned about so you teaching a different exam board to one you studied you know it was only eight years previously but actually there's things i had to teach i never never learned before so i worked pretty hard on my subject knowledge and i never, never regretted that because when i ended up taking on leadership responsibilities i was never worried about my lesson planning and the subject knowledge sense it was always about you know what what can i do in that lesson activity wise rather than having to learn things, you know, I, I, I felt that was a good investment of time. Okay, so you're kind of building up that knowledge and as um, I say, yeah, yes, the further, you, further you go into science, the smaller and smaller the area you're looking at. Um, but, uh, you know, going back to teaching as you what you're kind of widening, widening the lens again. And then you say so you, um, so after your, your time in London, did you go straight to, to Wellington College when Anthony Anthony Selden was there? Or was that, did he arrive after you'd arrived um, there? No, he, he'd been there two years i think before i came and i almost joined two years previously it's a bit of a bit of a strange thing i ended up staying um another couple of years but then i i joined uh, wellington college and um anthony selden had been there um and the school had made a decision to make some changes for example um to go um co-ed throughout to, to start teaching the international baccalaureate so there'd been some major decisions by wellington college to change what they were doing and 
it was very much um, a school that was on the up and there was a bit of a buzz around it and Anstey was quite a big name in education as well but it hadn't quite reached the, the full you know kind of impact that he would then have over the next few years so it's a really exciting time to join I enjoyed it. In terms of I, I met him briefly a few times of working with you in the um, the Wellington Academy which we'll talk about a bit later but um, I assume that what was his interview process like was it, I imagine because he's quite an interesting character himself I wonder what kind of questions he asked you and whether it was an unusual interview process or was it just a standard or was he not even involved in your particular appointment? I think you can imagine it probably wasn't completely standard. Um, and <laughs> he was, you know, he's quite um, direct in his questions, which I always admired. And I think he really just wanted to know that I had the ambition for my subject that the, the Wellington wanted, or he wanted for Wellington, you know, not to be quite good, to be the best in the world, to be the best biology department in the world or whatever it was. So he just wanted to know that that's what I wanted too. And, and I, uh, I, I just really love that level of ambition. It was um, a lot of schools say they want to be like that, but actually don't do much about it. You know, they, they just carry on being who they are for the rest of their, their time as a school. Whereas I think he was really trying to shake things up and make us think outside the box and think about what, what the best could be. So, for example, when I was there, we went on several trips to see schools overseas. That were amazing opportunities to go and see schools in the States, go and see schools in the Far East which were so different from the UK system, but were amazing places. So there's one school in uh, 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 Washington State, um, sorry, Washington, DC, and uh, it was a high school for science, um, specialist science school. And we ended up visiting, visiting there. And, and the projects they were doing, I mean, I've still never seen anything like that in the UK. You know, they were they were just kind of casually building a satellite and you know they have this project where where a car would come in and they kind of dismantle car from scratch and i guess that the, the the when you know what's out there beyond the normal uk kind of experience and you suddenly think well actually maybe we can be doing something quite exciting yeah and I'm, I'm, it's interesting you mentioned that kind of far east i read recently about um uh head teacher going going sounds like a similar kind of trip going to chi going to china on a uk delegate to kind of see what um we could learn from you know that system one thing that stuck out to me was that what, what he, the person that wrote was he's saying that although that um, their systems you know very successful in terms of they do well in their, their PISA test etc that um, he said something like the, the teachers in, I don't know if it, in his experience but in, in China had like forty percent timetables and it was something you couldn't necessarily recreate and also the culture of you know the respects of the teachers etc um, within the, you know the communities that he visited. Um, that, that you couldn't translate it because the, U, the UK would never kind of let you know teachers have a forty percent timetable, etc. So some things, although were very good, they couldn't really take away. So there were obviously so there's some good things that would take take away from those amazing schools. Anything that 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 was more difficult to implement in the UK, would you say things like that? Yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, it, not all of it is possible to translate, but you might get a little nugget of something that you might be able to translate. And um, I, I don't think that was quite good. And there were some teaching practices at Wellington College that we, we kind of um, stole, borrowed or whatever from, from those trips. Um, and, um, you know, that's great. But I do think generally in, in the UK, I, I um, started Wellington in 2008. You know, over that time, I think there has been a lot of innovation across the country. I do, I do think that if you look at some of the academies that were set up in the early 2010s, um, they were trying to do some of that. They were trying to be creative and in innovative. Uh, you know, I think there was an increasing move towards that. Um, 
I, 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 I think it is difficult to be genuinely um, challenging, you know, what, what it means to be, you know, a school in this country. So we, one of the things we did at Wellington was we, for some of our students, we did away with GCSEs and we did the middle years program of the international baccalaureate. And that was, that was challenging because universities, you know, there's a concern whether they'd recognize it because so few schools in the UK do it. Um, and it was all fine in the end, but, you know, I think it is hard to be bold. It's hard to be genuinely innovative. And I do think that we were in a, a sweet spot with, you know, Wellington and Anthony at that time that we, we were able to do those things. Yeah. And again, I suppose to, I was just thinking about, um, obviously there's always a big debate about independent versus states in, in the sense that I suppose in your own, in, you know, in, in that particular structure, you were able to experiment without, um, I suppose, so many external people telling you, you know, not to do this and not to do that, I guess. Um, so Anthony decided to, you know, go a particular way and he had that freedom to do so. Would that, would that be, you know? Definitely. True? I think uh, we can talk about the States Act maybe in a minute, but the, the, the Independence Act, you know, your, your, your main opposition, if, if, you, if you're trying to challenge a conservative view anywhere, it'd be amongst the parents, really, because they are rightfully worried about, you know, they're, they're, they're paying for their child's education. Suddenly you put something that might be perceived to be quite risky, even if it's something like the International Baccalaureate um, Diploma for sixth form, which is was incredibly successful. Many schools of it do, do it very, very well. But when you're doing A-level and that's your formula and suddenly you do something different, then it's a challenge and you've got to try and make sure that you are clear what the benefits are going to be. Yeah, because I imagine my impression of Wellington College is obviously it was very, obviously very like a lot of big um, independent schools, very traditional, obviously all boys, very, I guess, masculine in its, um, its history and you know, links to the military, etc. So, I mean, did, um, did people kick, kick back from that a little bit in terms of it's a great institution of, um, uh, you know, my, my son's been here and so and so and since, since you know, 18 whatever. Um, did, did Anthony get any kickback from the kind of traditionalists, I assume, when, when he kind of was shaking things up a little bit? I, I think so. But I think, as I said earlier, you know, I think the school before Anthony had come and made some decisions that things needed to change. So I think that going co-ed, for example, all the way through, I think six form girls have been there a, a, a while. Okay. But going co-ed throughout did challenge some of those views about quality of rugby or whatever it might be. Um, but you can see today what a success, uh, successful school it's been built into. And um, actually, you know, that's that's the most important thing at the end of the day, you know, is is how do the students fare in their time there? And, you know, do, does, the, does the school genuinely deliver its vision for education? And, in that case, you know, it's a good example of a school that was bold and was successful. And one of the uh, the kind of uh, famous things that happened there when Santley was was the, the link between you know the Wellington Academy in Wiltshire and and Wellington College. I mean, how do you know much of the history of, of how that relationship started, or how does that begin um, before it was kicked off? It happened. Um, it was kind of happening around the time that I joined, and I wasn't directly involved at that point. I, I think that that there'd been discussions. Um, not not just with Wellington, but with uh, the government looking for sponsors for schools that that needed to be re regenerated, and uh, schools that were in difficult catchments or had a long history of underachievement, um, school buildings that were you know, derelict, decrepit, or whatever. And I think that there had been discussion about um, you know finding a school to match. Um, the, what was Castledown School in, in, in Wiltshire. Um, and I think Wellington 
because because Castledale School was in a military garrison town or on the outside of a military garrison town, there was a feeling that one link it wasn't the only reason. The one link was that Wellington College had a military foundation as well. So there was a there was a connection to the military via the military that you no know, neither school are kind of military in their outlook. You know, it's not the same thing. Although you know, CCF the cadet force is important for both. Um, but I think the military link was was possibly part of it. And then once once the sponsorship had been agreed, then there was an arrangement that allowed the school to be rebuilt into brand new buildings and a very nice uh, school that was then built on the site. And um, you became the head teacher. I was trying to get the, the date right. Was it was it 2013 you came in? Yeah. 2013. Um, and I know that at the time that, you know, the, the academy had some, some difficulty, difficult, difficult Ofsted report, et cetera. And you, you come in, in in that September. Um, is that something you, you kind of put your hand up for? Or is that something Aunt Anthony suggested <laughs> one meeting one day? said, you know, Mike, I'd like you to have a look at this, this particular, um, you know, problem. Yeah, it's all a bit of a bit of a blur to be honest with you. But I think that um, the the project had been difficult before the academy had set, been set up because the whole reason for the sponsorship in the first place was the Castledown School had been viewed as a school that had been kind of up and down in its history, not been consistently good over any extended period of time, and um, needed needed a new ethos, needed a rebranding. So I guess when I came and I had, although I started in twenty thirteen, I had been down there on secondment previously to that. Um, the construction project was massive. There was a 30 odd million pound new school building. You know, it was amazing, uh, but a huge projects to deliver that. And that had been very successful. The more, the more difficult task of translating the expectations of the sponsor and the community uh, having their expectations, that, that would kind of still lay ahead. It hadn't, it hadn't quite um, uh, secured that bit of the journey and it was still early days. So Wellington College, um, the idea was to kind of inspire ambition. There was a lot of support for it in the community, actually. So I, I got a lot of uh, positive feedback when I started as well about, about you know, how good the link was going to be. Um, and, I, you know, I, I, I ended up taking the role of interim principal in 2013. And I was only supposed to be there for four months. Okay. <laughs> and... Uh, I was I was I was fully expecting to be replaced in January, and I was able to go back to my old job. But we had a team from the Department of Education who came in, uh, so we had some of the civil servants who came in. They wanted to check on the school's progress. They told me I needed to stay. Okay. Um, so um, and, and they, you know they 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 felt that if I stayed, it was going to be the best chance of the school's success at that point. So I then uh, sort of changed my life um, plan a little bit. And I went on to spend four years there, which was great. And I had a really good time. We had a new senior leadership team when I just started. Really enjoyed working with them. I think we achieved a lot of really interesting things in the four years. Definitely. And um, you kind of made me think about, um, as I mentioned earlier, you know, I worked there for a period of time with you as well. And um, difficulty of kind of challenging. And, and that relationship is, 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 is no longer, but in terms of a direct relationship with the college and uh, the Wellington Academy, to my understanding, but um, maybe think about the, the actual location, obviously being a garrison town. And um, what, I imagine one of the big challenges I was, I was thinking in, in places that are kind of semi-rural like that and nowhere near any kind of higher education uh, pr- provider, really, 
Um, I assume the staffing was one of the biggest challenges because I think in the, in the cities and in cities, yes, you have challenges, but you have perhaps more resources perhaps that are available to, to, to recruit to solve some of those problems. But I'm, I'm assuming that in the midwest of, uh, you know, sort of the east of Wiltshire, between Wiltshire, it's very difficult to get to that school and, um, you know, it's big car journeys. Was staffing one of the big things that was really difficult to get anyone to, you know, to, to join the school, I guess? Well, you remember, Andy, there were members of staff who drove a very long way to go to work, which was an incredible commitment, mm. including myself. I was, at one point, I had a journey of about an hour and a quarter every day yeah. together. Um, you know, it was, it was, it was, because the staff were so committed, they, they, they believed in the school and they would drive that, that distance to come in. And staffing is a challenge in all schools. And I think if you're, if you're not in a city, um, we didn't, ha uh, to begin with, have access to things like Teach First, although we did take some teachers um, on that programme eventually. Um, getting in younger graduate level staff who were well qualified and ambitious and so on was somewhat challenging. And we also had the problem of finding it difficult to replace, not just, you know, track new teachers, but replacing teachers who left as well. So when I first started, we had a number of vacancies. I think we had three, three vacancies in English, three in math, three in science. And the priority was not to just fill the vacancy, but to fill the vacancy with the best person that we could. We waited in some cases for the best staff that we could get to arrive. And there was a, a period where it was a little bit rocky because we we hadn't quite filled those vacancies. But I was pleased at the end that we ended up with teachers. And you remember from your experience in the science department, you know, subject specialists who really cared about their uh, subject and could inspire the kids. Because it wasn't just that we had a lot of students pre-A level. We also had the A levels to deliver as well because we were trying to develop a sixth form there. Mm. So, so we had to get really, really good teachers in who knew their stuff, and it was it was something that we we spent a lot of time trying to get right. And I guess um, you know the, the turnover in different schools is different, and you know um, in state schools tend to be, I imagine shorter than perhaps the independent sector. I'm guessing in terms of numbers of years people stayed. Is it, would that be? I mean, that's my um, experience. I would say, but is that, would that be brought out by your experience in terms of you know staffing different types of schools? Yeah, it's, um, I think, it, we'll go back to my own school experience. As I said, you know, from my school experience, it's one of those schools that teachers joined when they were young and they, they retired there, you know, and I think that, you know, that's that that, that era of um, staff has probably gone. I, I gave a retirement speech to a colleague not so long ago who'd been, in the, been at the school I was at 40 years. You know, I, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know how many more of those I will ever see because no, no. people don't do that anymore. And it's probably a good thing in a way, but you do, and I think you do need, and Wellington Academy is a very good example, you need staff who understand the local community. Yeah. And although we did we did have staff who travelled a long way, we also had some staff who lived locally as well who really did understand the community. And they were vital because, um, you know, they knew the families, met genera several generations of the families who'd been through the school even. Yeah, and that local knowledge is, is is really important in when you're you know solving some of those those complex problems, I guess. And um, I mean, did you come into it as a specific? You know, I want to do this first, this first, this first, or were you a bit more kind of um, holistic and kind of work with your team about that? Or did you have a clear vision when you started? First, we need to sort this out before we sort that out. In a kind of uh, maybe algorithmic way, I guess. I don't know. What, what any thoughts on the way? Sorry, kind of um, discussion points about how you'd approach when you arrived in the like first three four months. 
yeah it's uh i remember it very well actually because um I, I felt there was a as a need for simplification of what 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 had been laid out because um, you can have a really good action plan that's got you know multiple lines and columns on it but actually what matters most is whether your community understand what you're trying to do so we kind of pitched it around two things only to be honest with you in the first few months which was the behavior of the students so that behavior in, in and out of lessons needed to be improved and secondly, the low ambition levels of the community that had been there, which was the very reason for Wellington sponsorship to try to get that up. Mm. So we tightened behaviour up quickly. That was relatively easy um, initially. And then the um, then the other things that came in, we, we tried to align the um, kind of the systems within the school a little bit more around Wellington College. So we introduced house system, adjusted the uniform. We put in place more student leadership, more student voice. So we were hearing much more. And the, the kids did look, look untidy originally. And, and uh, there were a lot of people say, you know, they'll always look untidy. And they, they really embraced this. You know, the, the, you know, the new ties that we gave them or whatever. You know, I think it really did uh, change things quite quickly. What's your, because um, the uniform obviously comes up now and again in uh, various educational debates. And uh Sometimes I think if you're going to have a uniform, you've got to, you know, be strict about it or don't have or not have a uniform, I guess. Is there any particular kind of views you've had on, uh, obviously, UK generally, we wear, we have uniforms in the UK, but is there any particular advantage or disadvantage to having those or, or any mechanism and why they're important, would you say? I think it's, uh, I think it's a tricky one. I, I think what, where it causes a problem is if you end up in a situation where you're constantly you know, sending hundreds of kids home for uniform infringement create a bad feeling in the community about the uniform, then it becomes an issue. I don't know what we did, but something we did was right in that we, we just, you know, make, made sure that everyone looked smart. We didn't particularly harangue the kids about minor uniform discretions. We just suggested, tried to get them to, you know, constant reminders about doing their ties up or whatever it is. And, and it was perhaps a slightly less heavy-handed approach, which was successful, I would say. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And um, you, you spent, um, you said, for three, four years there. And um, what was the, was there a particular catalyst that kind of made, made you move back? Was it just family that made you move back to, to where you were before in terms of you went back to the independent sector? Um, was that a particular choice or you'd had enough of the state sector? Or was it, what, was, what were your thoughts, you know, about when you were thinking about moving on to the next thing? Uh, well, you know, I think, for, for the point of view of where I was, the main the main goal had been to get to Ofsted Good, which we did in 2016. So, you know, that, that was a, there was an opportunity for me to move on because I felt that, you know, things had gone well and it was time to go back to where I was. And I ended up running a senior school, independent senior school, as you say, and um, that was um, that was good. And it was part of an all-through school as well. So we had a middle school, and there was a junior school, and I was doing the senior school. And uh, it just looked like a really interesting project. It was an international group of schools. Um, they've got many schools around the world. And very, there's only two schools in the UK. And uh, again, it'd be very rewarding. I can't believe it's been five years and now they're finished there as well. Um, but, you know, it went very well. And for me, it's always been about the, the project and where I feel as a school where I can add value to it, then I will do that. And uh, I've been fortunate in the roles that I've had in senior leadership, which is, you know, been over quite a few years now that you know been with good people at the right time and we made a big difference and i will continue to look for those opportunities
And so you'll, you'll see literally at uh, the time we're recording this, just before Christmas uh, 2020, 2022, get the right to get the year right, um, <laughs> that um, you're, you know, you're moving on from, from Moda House School. And um, is that because you just feel like you need a break from education for six months? Or have you just thought, well, actually, I want to do something different? Um, uh, what are your thoughts behind this, this particular period of your career? Well, I think that... Um... No, I, I'm a great believer in not going out and staying in my welcome. And, you know, and, and Mike Wellington Academy, you know, I, I would not have left there if I didn't think that we could, it, it was not in a good place. And I was really pleased to see recently that they've just got a good in their Ofsted again, which, you know, makes me feel we did the right groundwork and, you know, it's carried on, which is what that community needed. And similarly, Adam House, very enjoyable five years and we just got our ISI inspection, everything's excellent, you know. And so, you know, again, I feel that, I achieved what I, what I didn't. I think COVID and, you know, the way the world's been over the past couple of years, the fact I've been in quite challenging jobs for 12 years or whatever, it's time for a bit of a break. And I was planning to take a sabbatical, um, take a bit of time off, um, but then ended, ended up teaching full time because we had a teacher down. So um, my sabbatical so far has been being back to being a full time teacher, which is actually <laughs> one, one of the most enjoyable things that I've done in a long time. Um, but now I need a break. So I'm going to take a few months off and then see what happens. And uh, kind of reflecting on your, your, your both, both times in like independent state sectors, I imagine you've had some quite interesting, um, perhaps bizarre um, uh, parental interactions or complaints. Um, are there any that kind of stick out or are they, are they different or do you get kind of similar problems coming to your desk um, in, in, in both of those experiences you've had? Is there anything, you don't have to name names, of course, but is there anything that kind of that surprised you in those years that, um, that the way that parents be behaved or, you know, any, any reflections on that? Oh, wow. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I, too I many to mention. <laughs> to, to, to give you a concise answer on, to be honest with you, I think that when you when you are responsible for young people's education, then that you know, means sometimes you're in conflict with parents and um, you are... Um, legally bound to do um, certain things and to operate in a certain way. You are making decisions beyond that about what you think is in the best interest of the students. And at the end of the day, I've found that most people, regardless of, um, you know, the, the concern or complaint they have, are very reasonable face-to-face -face and expectations being the main difference, I would say, between the state and the independent sector, expectations of the parents being very different. Um, and in the case of Wellington Academy, we felt we were trying to support and push out to the parents more. We were trying to engage them more in, in their children's education, which I think went very well and parents did appreciate. Whereas uh, sometimes in the independent sector, sometimes you can have parents who are perhaps a little bit too involved. So you know, <laughs> it, it, it's it's a wide range. Um, but whatever you do, you know, I think it's, it's about being very clear about what your expectations are as a school and to only ever have the best interest of the child at heart at the end of the day. Mm, of course. Yeah. Um, and any thoughts about, um, cause we kind of meant to touch on this earlier, but thinking about obviously the, you know, what a school is and obviously you've, 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 you've had a variety of experiences managing them, but also visiting some amazing schools. Um, is there anything that, you know, you would like to see kind of changing, I suppose, in the next, you know, 10, 20 years about the way we think about schools? I often think, we, you know, we are overly uh, um, looking at specific areas that maybe don't really help um, children long term um, thinking about, you know, the, the, 
deficit in skills sometimes and um, kind of moving from school to employment and all, all those kind of questions anything from your view that you think is you'd like to shape you in the dfe what would you suggest that would be a nice thing for the opportunities to be yeah i mean i think there's a couple of things i, mean, I think um that one thing to go back to what i said right at the beginning about what inspired me is i really think we need to be careful not to lose from the classroom the best and most inspiring teachers that we have and there are two sources of loss one of which of course is the attritional loss due to the terms and conditions and and how how, how the profession is perceived generally um, but also the fact that some of the most talented teachers are usually um, they are accelerated in their promotions so quite quickly quickly they go from the classroom into leadership roles which then means they are less able to be in the classroom for the kids and I think getting that balance right going forward is to keep as many inspirational members of staff in front of the kids as possible really needs to be looked at. And I think more generally, you know, about how education's going, I think for me, it's been really pleasing to see that we, we now give much more care to the, the whole child rather than just looking at their academic outcomes. And I think that that needs to be well supported in terms of staff. I don't think you can do that on a skeleton staff structure. Because if you, if you staff your school based around um, just simply number of teachers and classes that are being taught, then you're not supporting your children in a way that the modern world requires. And I, th I think there has to be a greater acceptance that pastoral support is not just about, you know, kind of somebody's add-on role. It's a genuine commitment the school should have to look after the children. And it has to be budgeted for. You cannot do that with no funding. Yeah, no, funding, is, funding is a big thing. And it's, it's quite interesting reflecting on kind of the teaching aspect, because you think that, as you said, um, if you become a, a super amazing teacher and that, you know, that sometimes takes, sometimes takes time, it definitely, I improved the more I did it, the better I, I, I felt I, I got, you know, the more I learned that every lesson I did. Um, but it's, yeah, you're almost like, no matter how, how, how good you get at that, there's, there's almost, um, I suppose the financial thing as in, as in they're not going to pay you anymore. Depending on how amazing you might become, it's actually in a sense if you want to get out of the classroom quicker and earn more money, um, you know the teaching becomes secondary secondary to that. And it's quite an odd model in a sense that you you you, you disincentivize people to be getting better at the the core aspect to me of the job, but you kind of um, uh, you, you know you have to go in a different direction as you said. So it's it's, it's a funny system in a sense, isn't it? Exactly, and uh, I think if we try and get that right, then I think that, you know, the, the kids will have the inspiration and the support required to get them to be the best versions of themselves they can be. And um, I think that's not changed since when I was a kid. Yes. Um, and I was, I was thinking, final question to you is kind of the, the thrust of this podcast is, is thinking about, you know, science teachers and a headship as well. And um, I think in my career, you were the only science science teacher that was a head teacher. I think at the school, the five schools I worked in, and what have you. Um, is there anything um, that's going to science teachers bring to headship? And and my second question being, you know, is if you do want to go for headship, other things you should be doing. It seems like you've got to get out of the classroom as quick as you like, quick quick as you can, um, and take on other responsibilities. I guess any any kind of suggestions for people who wanted to to move on to kind of leadership roles, and, and maybe they're in the science department at the moment. I think being a science scientist is a blessing and a curse in this, actually, because the positives are that scientists are very good at analysing, uh, you know, very good at you know reviewing processes and, and data usually, and, and more importantly than that, I find that scientists are often the doers in the school. You know, they're the ones when they get up and go and they will get things done. 
all of that's good. I think there's a slight stigma with scientists, to be completely honest, that, that perhaps they sometimes don't therefore have the other skills that are required, which arguably, you know, people want to see in a headship. So I, I, I would just urge people to get as much broad experience as possible. Don't don't get pigeonholed as something you're not. You know, go and get some experience in academic side of management at school, the pastoral side of managing the school, and, and just present a very broad CV at the end of the day. And then you're in the best place possible. And if you do that, then you'll be able to bring in all of those skills that make scientists so amazing in schools. And I do think that, you know, it, it is is an opportunity, but it's one that I think getting your experience right is important for. Thanks so much. I hope that will inspire many of the listeners to have a think about their, their career, career trajectory and think about, as you, as you say, the importance of taking on different roles and perhaps roles that you may not have thought if you're kind of like the academic side or your pastoral side and maybe having a having a bit of experience of both must help in terms of your overview of the school, definitely. Um, um, really interesting to chat to you today, Mike. Thank you very much for, for coming on and I wish you all the best in the next educational chapter. I'm sure you'll pop up again in a school, perhaps in the, in the next few years, who knows? And um, thanks for joining me on the podcast uh, today. Thank you very much, Andrew. So there we have it. Another episode of The Pod Done and Dusted. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Mike. It was so interesting to talk to somebody on the podcast who has had that experience of both state and independent sector management and a clear passion for not just science education, but the role of schools as a whole in young people's lives. Do you know anyone who has an inspiring educational story to tell us who we should be talking to on the podcast? Please let me know. Feel free to get in touch on my personal email address, which is andy.woods at pearson.com. I promise to get back to you. Thanks again for listening and I'll see you on the next one. Thank you.